I'm going to wait just a moment uh, to read today's scripture lesson. If you were here last week or before, or you tuned in with us, you know that we are in the midst of a sermon series dealing with what Christ expects of his church. We all have expectations of the church. Parishioners do, uh, clergy do, uh, different groups and organizations have their expectations of what the church should be or do. Those on the left and on the right of the political uh, spectrum certainly have their hopes and expectations for what the church will be and do. But we're looking at what does Christ expect of his church, those people that bear his name. Surely the expectations of Jesus trump all other expectations. And one place where we can get a sense of this is in the strange book of Revelation. The first three chapters, John is in exile because of his faith on the Isle of Patmos. And he has this dramatic vision of the risen Christ. And Christ addresses him and tells him to write down what he's saying and to deliver specific messages to seven different congregations in Asia Minor. Now, Patmos was some 60 miles off the coast. The first letter goes to the nearest place, to Ephesus. And we looked uh, last week of the story of Ephesus and what did uh, Christ expect of the church in Ephesus. And keep in mind that these expe expectations apply to all of the churches. Each of these seven churches read the letters that went to the other churches. So it's just like we are reading these church, uh, letters uh, and we should be applying them to our life and to our uh, discipleship in our own day. So the first lesson was that what Jesus really expects of those who bear his name is love. He tells the church, while they do many good things, while they, they resist heresy, their beliefs are right, uh, their actions are good, they're steadfast in their faith. And yet he has something against them. And what he has against them is that they don't love like they formerly loved. Their love has faded. And I think this is inclusive. He's talking about their love for him, their love for their neighbor, their love even for one another in the church there in Ephesus. So the first thing Jesus expects, and I think uh, this is not only first in sequence, but I personally believe it's first in importance, is that we are people who love we love the Lord. Hopefully we can try to maintain that love that we first had when we came to faith in Christ. But we need to work on that because it's easy for that to fade in light of other distractions and obligations. But love is most important. We've probably all sung the song, they will know we are Christians by our love. That's how the early church made such an impact upon the, on society. That's why the book of Acts says there, behold how they love one another. And they proceeded to start turning the world upside down because of their love. And so the first expectation, even of this church and our day, is that we should be people of love. The love of God, love of neighbor, and love even of one another in the household of faith. Now, I didn't uh, get many complaints last week since I focused on love. Everybody's for love. We all believe in love, and we sometimes believe the way we love is the best way to love. But uh, at any rate, love is a priority for those who bear the name of Christ. But we may not be so drawn to this next message. It's a letter to the church at Smyrna, or some pronounce it Smyrna. Um, and there's a specific word there about suffering. Now, we don't want, like to think about suffering. 
It's not as popular as the subject of love. But Jesus has something to say to his people about being prepared to suffer, even as we are to be prepared to love extravagantly, sacrificially, so are we to be prepared to suffer. And this is the letter, beginning uh, at verse 8 in chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you're rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts gain acceptance in your sight, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So if in the first instance we are to be prepared to love, if we are going to bear the name of Christ, so too we are told here that we must be prepared to suffer. That is not a popular message that most of us want to hear, but there it is in the scriptures and is worthy of our reflection and our devotion. Now you may wonder, what does love and suffering have to do with one another? Well, they're closely related, actually, because you will willingly suffer for what you love, be it a cause, a country, a person, a child, a spouse, who would not lay down his or her own life? Who would not be willing to sacrifice to the nth degree to protect or to serve someone that you love? John R. Stott, Stott says that a, a willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. A willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer who died, as surely you know, in a concentration camp in Germany during the days of Hitler, said that suffering is the badge of the Christian. That we should all expect there to be some suffering in our lives. Nevertheless, it doesn't appeal to any of us. If we could avoid suffering, certainly we would. But there are times when suffering has to be embraced, especially in the cause of Christ and especially out of a preeminent love for Christ in our lives. But it's not the path that most, most of us would willingly choose to take. So what are we to make of this business of suffering as Christian people? How are we to make sense of this letter to Smyrna where Jesus praises the church because of its affliction and its poverty and even tells them that more suffering is on the way? Get ready for it. Most of us would resist this kind of appeal, I think. I'm sure that most people who sign up to be a part of our new member classes here at the church aren't signing up to suffer. That's not on the 
list of questions you answer when you join the church, but the question comes down through the ages to ask, if called upon, would we suffer in the cause of Christ? I suspect that many of us are still back in the Old Testament when it uh, comes to this idea of suffering because you can find some <clears throat> passages in the Old Testament such as the one Vivian read this morning from the 91st Psalm that seem to be saying that if God, you are with God and God is for you, then God's going to protect you from illness, from your adversaries. He will save you from death. No scourge will come near your tent if you're with God. And yet, we know in our heart of hearts that that's not always the case. Jesus helps us to see this more clearly when we get to the New Testament and we come to understand that faithfulness does not guarantee an easy life for you or protection from your enemies or not being susceptible to disease or to death. So consequently, God's people have to deal with this subject of suffering. And we find traces of this attitude about suffering, such as I mentioned from passages in the Old Testament. There are remnants of this in the church today. A lot of people speak of the health and wealth gospel, that you have faith and you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be healthy. And that's the promise of the gospel, but only with a very restricted, and I would say perverted reading of the scriptures but we find it among us even to this day. And so many people give up on God because God doesn't save them or their loved ones from death, from disease, from difficult experiences in life. And they really think that it is God's business as their God to protect them and to serve them rather than the other, that it is our charge to serve God. And so they lose trust in God, lose faith in God and fall away. But the God they're falling away from is not the God who speaks ultimately through the scriptures and through the life and ministry of Jesus, but the God that they have created in their own mind and imagination. And that's why I say many of us have not made it from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which reminds us that suffering is really inevitable if you take your commitment to Jesus Christ seriously. And it is not something to avoid at any price. Indeed, sometimes it is to be embraced because that suffering can be used of the Lord in remarkable ways to bless you and to bless other people. But your faith will put you at odds with the world about you, with the culture around you. And so Jesus tells us up front, be prepared for that. In Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending the, the apostles out on their mission, he gives them a pep talk, if you could call it that. But he says to them, you're going out as sheep among wolves. And you will be flogged. You will be imprisoned. Some of you will even die. Now, I love uh, looking at the parables and the miracles of Jesus in, in the Gospels, some of his discourses, his uh, beautiful beatitudes. But when it comes to giving pep talks, this isn't a great one. This is no win-one for the Gipper here. And I wonder how many of us would be inspired by that kind of speech. Yes, go out and serve me, but you're going to be flogged, you're going to be whipped, you're going to be imprisoned, and some of you are going to die. And if the Apostle John is the authority behind this gospel, 
had influence upon it if he didn't write it himself. Surely he knew what was the fate of the other apostles. He was the only one, so far as we know by church tradition, who lived to be an old man. All the other apostles died, most as martyrs. Some were beheaded, some were crucified, endured horrible death, some were stoned to death, and yet they were a powerful witness. And the life of the early church took form in the blood of the martyrs and the apostles. Now, I, I am not telling you this morning that suffering is necessary if you're a Christian, but I am telling you that it is probably inevitable. I know of no person who gets out of this life without suffering in some way, shape, or form. The key thing is how do we embrace it? How is this suffering used in our lives by God and by us as a part of our witness? Most of us do not live in places where we risk our very lives in order to own the name of Jesus Christ. There are places around this world that that is a risk. You could lose your life by being a professing Christian. But we're called to sacrifice nonetheless, whether it's our life or not. We may be called to sacrifice our popularity, our power, our prestige, our wealth. We may be faced with giving up in the cause of Christ, even our own family, even our citizenship. What are you willing to sacrifice because of your prior love for Jesus Christ? The unadulterated truth is that the Christian church is a countercultural movement. It always has been and it always will be, regardless of the culture, even the culture of America is often a challenge to our understanding of our God, of his will and his way for us and for others. So all Christians find themselves at time out of accord with the culture that surrounds them. There are attitudes and policies and perspectives that are foreign to the gospel as we know it. And if we stand up for what we believe is right and what the love of Christ compels us to do, then we will be at odds with other people. I remember when I was a teenager, I was about 15, when <clears throat> I suddenly came to realize, to the extent that I could, the sin of racism. And I remember the struggle I had because uh, my friends and peers would tell racist jokes and I would laugh at them, even when I realized how wrong they were. And I remember feeling a lot of guilt about that. And when I challenged us to look at our own lives <clears throat> in light of what's going on in society today, to see how we are complicit <clears throat> in blatant racism, I thought that back to my teenage years. And I know the reason I was complicit is because I didn't want to see, seem weird to my friends. So I went along. And I regret that. There's so many ways we're complicit with evil in our lives because we don't want to lose our popularity, our position, our place, our wealth, whatever you would call it. And yet, 
To follow Christ is to be willing to stand apart from the crowd, to do what is right and faithful in even what seems to be a losing cause. Now, what was it about Smyrna that caused the, the, the suffering? Smyrna, if uh, Ephesus last week was the, <clears throat> the most important city in the Roman province of Asia, Smyrna was perhaps the most beautiful. Its architecture, its arts, its education, its temples were wonders of the ancient world. Smyrna had a close relationship with Rome, so much so that <clears throat> they were allowed to build a temple to Tiberius Caesar, <clears throat> to honor the Caesar, to encourage emperor worship. People were called upon once a year to burn incense and to ascribe ultimate worth to Caesar, to say Caesar is Lord. And of course the early church refused to do this. It was a sign of patriotism in the realm. And when Christians opposed doing that and refused to do it, many of them were sought and punished even by death. When we look at what matters to us most, what we truly worship, I've told you before that whatever we ascribe ultimate worth to, that is our God, whether we call it a God or not. If we worship the Lord Jesus Christ above all else, then that is going to put us at odds with many of our neighbors, with our government, even with our own family members. And yet we must be willing to sacrifice even that to serve the God whom we've come to know in Jesus Christ. So Smyrna had all these beautiful things. They were favored by the Roman emperors because of their support of the crown, if you will. They had all these beautiful temples which you could see from 20 miles out into the Aegean Sea. They stood on a hill and it looked like a crown and it talks about the crown here. <clears throat> it's used in a different context. But this was the city that was also allowed to build a temple to honor the goddess Roma, which meant the spirit of Rome. So they took great pride in their patriotism and their recognition of the divinity even of Caesar. Now there's some disturbing things that are said about uh, the Jews here. They're called a synagogue of Satan. And what's behind that is apparently some within the Jewish community, and John says, are not true Jews because they were willing to concede this uh, show of patriotism. They didn't take it seriously, I'm sure. Having the first and second commandments about having no God but God. But at any uh, rate, they went through the ritual of paying homage to Caesar, burning some incense and saying Caesar is Lord. But the Christian church could not do that. Many of their Jewish friends turned them in and reported some of them. Early history books talk about this. But they, the Jews had much to learn and so did the Christian church. I'm sure there were many within Christendom that yielded to that temptation of giving ultimate obedience to Caesar. Jesus himself give to, said, give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. And sometimes our Caesars, our leaders, claim an authority that is not theirs and make demands upon their citizens that they have no right to expect.
So the Christians of Smyrna were persecuted. It talks about their affliction and their poverty. They were poverty stricken because their places of business were boycotted. People refused to trade or deal with them because of their faith and they suffered. And yet Jesus tells this church, as he tells all of his churches, hold fast, stay faithful, be prepared for the suffering that comes because inevitably it will in some way. But stand tall and be willing to be my people who are marked by my name. Within the lifetime of some of those who first read this letter, I am sure, there was a great martyr there in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp, and he was a bishop in the early church, a beloved bishop. And when the public spectacle, the public games, stirred so much patriotism up among the Roman citizens of Smyrna, they went out to round up people who refused to honor Caesar, and they went looking for uh, Polycarp because he had uh, left the city and was trying to get away from the turmoil. He was about 20 miles away from Smyrna. But the Roman guards went and they found him and they brought him back. He didn't resist arrest and he even offered to feed those who were his captors who were arresting him. On the way back to Smyrna, one of his captors said, why don't you just give credence to the genius of Caesar, the genius of Caesar, and revile Jesus Christ and they'll turn you loose. It's just a ritual, it's a show. You don't have to take it seriously. But he refused. Let me read you uh, a little from a history book about the death of Polycarp. When they ask him to uh, deny Christ and to say Caesar is Lord, he was 86 years old at this time. <clears throat> And this is what he says, according to tradition. For 86 years I have served him, talking about his Lord, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who served me, has saved me? The proconsul threatened then to throw Polycarp to the wild beast. But Polycarp said, go ahead and call the beast in. Since he showed no fear of the beast, the proconsul threatened to burn him at the stake. The angry crowd, both Jews and Gentiles, gathered wood for the fire, and Polycarp asked only that he not be fastened to a stake. The fires were lit, and the martyr prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing in the cup of Christ among the number of the martyrs. The fire raged, the winds blew the flames away from Polycarp, Polycarp only adding to the intense heat and the prolonged agony. <clears throat> and finally, a Roman soldier stepped up and in sympathy put an end to his suffering by killing Polycarp with the sword. The, the letter to Smyrna about being willing to sacrifice being willing to suffer if need be is a letter to each of us. It's a letter to our congregation here in Greensboro and to every congregation that bears the name of Christ. It calls upon us to examine our love. Is our love sufficient enough that we would be willing to sacrifice in the cause of Christ? 
Frankly, I fear that. I wonder if our love is that strong, if our faith is that embedded within us, that we would stand up even to the point of death. Sometimes it's hard enough to get our members of the church just to sacrifice in terms of attending at worship or studying the scriptures or engaging in service to the community or praying or having a devotional life, sacrificing their time and their talents and their treasure in the cause of Christ. But even these things may cost them very little, but some have a problem doing that. For many within the church, it is not sacrifice. I thought the other day I was reminded if, um, uh, of Mahatma Gandhi. He knew much about the gospel and much admiration for Jesus Christ. And he was familiar with the church's discussion of the seven deadly sins. And so Gandhi came up with what he called the seven deadly social sins. I don't know if you've ever seen these. I have a big poster back at home that I had up in my office for a long time. This is what Gandhi said are the seven social sins. Wealth without work. That has to do whether you refuse to work or because you don't have to work. Living off inherited wealth. Wealth without work. Pleasure without conscience. Science without humanity. Knowledge without character. Politics without principle. Commerce without morality. And worship without sacrifice. Can you worship without sacrifice? Gandhi thought not. And I think that is what this letter to the church of Smyrna is saying to us. Worshiping God will inevitably result in some kind of sacrifice on our part. So do we have the conviction and the courage to stand up to all those spirits in our society that seem to be opposed to the gospel and to the ways of God in our lives and in our world? Will we speak truth to power when that power is not warranted and is not deserved and is inappropriate? Will we disavow the world's values and the world's views because of our prior commitment to Jesus Christ? Do we trust Christ enough not only to believe in him, but to trust him with our lives, with our careers, with our families, with everything. Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, if you hold on, you will receive the crown of life, much like the tree of life in the last chapter in the letter to Ephesus. It's just saying that you will be victorious in my eyes, whether you are victorious in the world's eyes or not. And you will be spared the second death, meaning the first death is physical death. The second death is eternal death. You'll be spared that. So just be faithful and trust in God. I hope and pray that we love God sufficiently to be prepared when sacrifice comes our way. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the dictating and the recording the reading and the understanding of this word from our Lord 
to the church, the church of Smyrna, but to the church in every age. Lord, strengthen our love. We pray that it will not fade as it did in Ephesus. Strengthen our courage and our conviction that we will stand up for those things that we are convinced are of God, not of man. Grant us this blessing through Christ our Lord. Amen.